Today we come in the series Unnoticed Grace to this idea of adoption, which is a, which is a very powerful idea from, from the scriptures. And I was at the park uh, just the other day with, with my two sons, and I, I heard and saw this uh, little three-year-old girl running and shouting, you know, like a three-year-old child. And she was running and shouting, and, and then I turned, and she was jumping into her father's arms, and she, was, and she said, Abba, Abba. And it was this really cool moment. You know, it was one of those moments I sort of wanted to, set, to like pause, slow motion, soundtrack going on out of a, you know, out of a movie kind of thing. And, and, and it was just an amazing moment. And I couldn't really, I mean, I think it was Aramaic, right? Because it was Abba, Abba. Um, and I couldn't really understand anything else they were saying, which is probably good because it would have been a creepy guy over there eavesdropping on their conversation. But, but, but I thought in my mind, right, this is a simple everyday moment for them. Because they have this kind of relationship. And then my mind went to this verse in Scripture where Jesus is talking to his father. It's right before the cross where Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he says in Mark 14, he says, Abba, Father. And then he says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not I will, but you, uh, but your will. Your will be done. Right. So he has this posture toward his father, this intimate kind of connection. And there's something arresting about the word Abba. There's something with it that carries a sense of belonging or belovedness, and it transcends time and languages and culture even. And when I saw that little girl run and jump and kind of laugh with her dad together, have this, this what I would deem special sacred moment, what I thought to myself was one thing's really clear. She knows who she belongs to, her dad. And she knows what she belongs to, her family. And no matter how many years go by, there's this enduring quality inside of us, this yearning inside of us for belonging. It's in our spirit. And the remarkable thing about what God promises to us through the scriptures is that he is our Abba. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus and say yes to him, I want you to be my Savior and Lord, we belong to him and to his family and this belonging, this, this need for it, this desire for it, it, it doesn't waver over time or lessen over time. In fact, quite the opposite. It actually grows over time as the years go on because the, the, the sense of belonging and the desire for it is enduring. And I think we can be like this little girl. It was a great picture to me. We can be like her in the sense of running unashamedly to her dad's open arms with joy and security just shining from her eyes. We can be like that with God. But here's what happens along the way in life. It kind of gets lost on us, doesn't it? I mean, in a world where the mass of humanity essentially is searching to belong to groups or, or identities or tribes or, or various things, we find ourselves, I know I do at times, drifting away in, into that tide that sort of overtakes us and overwhelms us. And we forget that we don't have to search in other people and other places for that belonging because we already have it, at least access to it. And, and as we travel through Ephesians 1 in the series, we, we come to verse 5, which is an incredible verse where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, in love... He predestined us, right? Before the beginning of time, he had this planned out. He predestined us for what? For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Adoption to sonship in accordance with his pleasure and will brought him great joy. So this idea of, of adoption is threaded throughout the, the New Testament in various places. 
And it's this transformational and really powerful truth that can change the way we live, change the way we relate to God, to other people. And it's why I think this very idea about being a child of God is so important to understand, to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. And I want to talk this morning about three new realities that in essence emerge from what it means to be adopted as a son or a daughter. And when we understand and and respond to really these three new realities, they change everything about how we live and how we relate. So the first new reality that emerges from being adopted as a son or daughter is this. That living as a child of God gives you complete assurance of God's love and of our standing with him. Complete assurance of God's love and our standing with him. And this whole word adoption, you know, you look at the New Testament, it was originally written in Greek. And and what this word essentially means in Greek is, is really simple, but to make you a son. To make you a son. Daughters, females, hang tight for just a second. In Roman culture, and Paul was a Roman citizen, adoption... They didn't think of it like we think of it. We tend to think of adopting an infant or at least a very young child typically is how it goes. But in Roman culture, they would adopt adults in almost every case. For instance, let's say a man had this estate, right? He had all his belongings and he he didn't have an heir and he wanted to pass it on to somebody, right? He didn't want to just get divided up, broken up. So he would find someone, a man... And he would find a person that he respects and admires, and he would basically approach them and say, hey, I want you to be my son. I want to adopt you. I want everything that I have to be yours. Which, you know, personally, side note, digression here, but, you know, if that's me and anybody in the crowd wants to do that with me, I mean, I'm available, right, to pass on everything you own to me, you know, any day. Just let me know. But, uh, but nonetheless, but, but, but this is what would happen, right, in, in Roman culture, right? They, they'd bring this person in. And, and then when this wealthy man would adopt this adult son, several things would happen. First, all of the new son's legal obligations were canceled. No longer did he owe anything. Second, that son became as wealthy as his father. So he immediately gets the father's name, and now he owns everything, essentially, that the father owns. And then third, the father becomes liable or responsible for anything the son does. So he does something foolish, the father is responsible. And so the son has this responsibility to uphold the father's name and reputation. Now, similarly, when we are adopted by the heavenly father, as the scriptures tell us we are, there is a change in status or standing with God. You might think about it like this to kind of understand it. Think about a governor or a judge, right? He has a criminal in front of, me, in front of him. He, he, it's one thing to let him off so he doesn't have to pay the penalty for his crimes. I mean, that's one thing. But it's a whole other thing if that governor invites this criminal into his home, adopts him, makes everything he owns, uh, gives that over to this new, you know, this criminal essentially, And even makes him a hero, gives him a medal, celebrates him, delights in him. I mean, that's a whole other thing. And why this context is so meaningful is because there's a parallel here. That God adopts us with all our history, all our pain, all our damaging choices, all our sin and brokenness. God adopts us. When we think about adoption, we usually think of these innocent babies or or a child coming with a clean slate to, to the parents. But one astounding thing about God is that he adopts us. He adopts you in your impure form, in your sinful 
dirty, malnourished form, as, as Paul in the video even mentioned. When they first saw their kids, that, that was how they were presented them. But if you notice, their, their love for their kids actually grew, grew greater and was greater in light of that. And so in Ephesians 1, what Paul is telling us is, is that being adopted into God's family is an incredible act of grace. It is the highest possible honor and the greatest privilege you will ever receive. It's extraordinary. Now, you may have noticed, especially women in the house, may have noticed this, this word sonship. So, so, so it begs the question, right, is, what about daughtership? Is Paul being exclusive here? And some people criticize Scripture, right, and say women are left out sometimes or, or not seen as equal. But, but to understand Scripture, you really have to look at the whole of Scripture. You have to understand it in context. And, and in this case, there's another passage that I think sheds light on the idea of what Paul's getting at. So Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, writes this. You are all sons of God. All right, speaking to men and women here. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, follow us. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're from Abraham. And heirs, all of you, male and female, heirs according to the promise. Now, Paul was clear that when he addressed people standing with God, no one was left behind. And in this text, the objective was not the word sonship. It wasn't the metaphor itself. It was the point behind the metaphor. The point was that anyone who believes in and follows Christ is immediately ushered into this role of being a co-heir with Christ, male and female alike. So in the Roman world... Understanding the context, women were oppressed, and they weren't allowed to be heirs. So what Paul actually is doing here, he's being subversive, quite radical, actually. He's going in opposition to the cultural values of their day. And similarly, I mean, just as we're all called his bride in the Scriptures, and I mean, I don't want to be called a bride, right? Side note, I'm, you know, a guy. I don't want to be called a bride. It feels a little uncomfortable. But nonetheless, the, the, the metaphor isn't the point. The point of the metaphor behind it right, is the point. But just as men are not excluded from being his bride, right, women are not excluded from being his heirs. So this is what Paul's doing. Paul wants us to understand in adoption and in sonship, right, it's the same thing he, he, he captures, John, uh, John captures, the apostle John captures, he captures the same thing really Paul is saying. Here's how John says it. See how very much our heavenly father loves us. There's an exclamation part at the end of the sentence. See how much our Heavenly Father loves us, for He allows us to be called His children. And here we go, and we really are. Or one translation says, is that is what we are. I mean, as a father myself, I mean, I, I want everything for my kids. And I want them to know, first and foremost, I want them to have the assurance of my love for them and their standing with me that is not, that, that is not earned that it's there no matter what, right? And as an imperfect father, that's true of me. I want that to be true. And it's sad that, that God's children, that, that we don't live in that same knowledge and assurance. I mean, I want my kids to be anchored in this truth, rooted in it. And the sense of assurance of God's love is the anchor, the truth that we must hold on to. And if we don't, we will be lost and abandon. We'll feel that. But here's the truth, really simply put. God loves you. You are his beloved daughter and beloved son. 
And he wants you to live in light of that knowledge. He wants that to bring you assurance in your life, a sense of deep confidence, because you're standing with him as you're all good when you receive Jesus. Now, it moves us to the second reality, which is really inseparably connected to the first, and it's this, that living as a child of God fosters fearlessness. It fosters fearlessness. In Romans 8 and then later in Galatians 4, we read this, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit's job, God's job, the Holy Spirit, is to show us that we are his children and to guide us to living in that freedom. This isn't to say that that you should pretend like you have nerves of steel and and, and nothing bothers you like a robot, you know, kind of thing. I have a friend who who told me uh, he doesn't get nervous. And I said, well, if you don't get nervous, that means you're not taking any risks. You know, and and, and that's the idea. But, But freedom does mean this. Freedom means that if your life is dominated by anxiety and worry, you're not living centered in this reality, the reality that adoption offers you. As daughters and sons of God, we don't have to live as slaves to fear. We can live in freedom. And again, in Roman culture, there was these big households, and, and there was lots of workers that tended be, to be in them, and some were servants or, or slaves, and, and others were sons, and, and they were all in this household. And it was said that if you walked into one of those households, you wouldn't be able to tell who was who, who was a son, who was a worker, who was an employee, who was a slave. Right? You would just kind of enter in there because all of them were kind of doing the same stuff. They were all doing jobs, sometimes menial jobs, sometimes you know, more important ones, but they were all kind of clumped together in, in one sense. But there was one big distinction. And it was that the slaves knew they could be cast out. And as a result, they worked under compulsion. The son, however, knew the father loved him. He knew that he's absolutely secure and that the house was his. And so some of the people in the house related to the head of the house as slaves, and other people related to the head of the house as sons. And just to connect this further, in another text from Galatians, Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, really it's both, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. He's essentially saying, don't live like you used to. Don't live with a slave mentality. And there are some of us who relate to God, right? The father as a slave does to a feudal lord, to an authoritative boss. But God's desire for you is to relate to him as a son or a daughter with freedom and joy and love. And children relate to parents this way. I mean, a son's mentality is in essence, this is my house and my relationship with my father is secure. I am fully accepted. I don't have to live in fear of earning his approval. I don't have to perform for him so that he loves me. This is my father's world. I'm accepted by him. And I can live from that place of knowing who I am and knowing who he declares me to be. 
The son knows his father won't condemn him or cast him out or expel him from the house. And so in essence, effectively, it's his own house. And as a result, the son lives in the freedom of knowing God's love and acceptance of him no matter what. And in contrast to that, slaves... They knew they could be demoted or or even expelled, and so they are full of anxiety and fear. They work out of compulsion, not freedom. I mean, do you see that the, the slave and the son are obeying the same person, but they're doing it with different feelings and motives underneath? And sometimes this is religion. On the outside, it looks the same, but something different, entirely different, is happening on the inside. And slaves, they're up and down emotionally. Why? Well, because if they perform well, they feel good. But when they fail or don't measure up, they're depressed, they're insecure, they're feeling less worthy or valuable. But a son isn't afraid of being rejected, even when things go badly, because a son knows he's accepted, and it's not based on his performance. And there's no question that's lingering inside of him, do I belong, or am I loved, or am I accepted? I mean, Think about how that breaks down in life. I mean, as a son, if you have a good week, when you live up to the standards, you don't get all puffed up because you know that it's not based off your performance that determines your value. So when things go well, a son or a daughter of God right, stays even keel about it. And then when things go poorly, the same is true. Because you stay even keel and you're at rest with your standing with God. Your complete assurance fosters a fearlessness in you. And these two new realities are inseparable. I mean, do you see how a child of God relates to the Father differently? And if you learn to live this way, it can transform the way that you live, the way that you relate to God, the way that you relate to others. It can foster freedom from the fear of performing well for God, for others, even for yourself that gets wrapped up in your own ego. But sadly, many Christians, many Christ followers, they they don't get a hold of this mentality. And as a result, they don't absorb it deeply or live in it fully, and they miss out. And it becomes unnoticed grace. Last week, my son Hudson had had a hard week. There were some kids that uh, he he deemed um, being bullies to him. And so I I noticed one day as I took him to school that that, that he was a little anxious and nervous. I said, what's wrong, buddy? You're you're, you're off a little bit. And he said, yeah, dad, I'm I'm a little nervous that that, that some kids are going to be bullies to me today. And my heart, you know, broke for him. And and I hadn't known it up to that point. He started articulating it. And he told me a couple days before that, um, that he went up and tried to sit with these three kids at lunch. And they told him he couldn't sit with him. And then the following day, he, he, you know, we had kind of coached him, you know, just like hanging there and told him a few things. And, and so he, he sat near them again, just kind of happened that way. And they got up from the table and they walked away. And my heart was just like, oh, you know. And, and I was with him in that. And, and in that conversation, what I told him was, husband, do you know why they're being bullies? I said, no, dad, why are they being bullies? I said, do you know why they're pushing people away, pushing you away? I said, because they want to feel superior. Because it makes them feel better than, because they don't know or perhaps receive love that they need. And we do this as adults too. We push people down, we push people away, we find fault in others, we criticize others. Why? Same reason. Because we want to feel morally superior. We want to feel better than someone else. We want to feel more valuable or lovable or loved. 
And here's the thing. The reason you do it to other people is because you do the very same thing to yourself. You push yourself down. You criticize yourself. You're judgmental against yourself. You're self-critical. You don't feel worthy or loved or even lovable. And you let that voice inside of you exist that tells you you're not lovable. And some of you are harder on yourself than God or anybody else is, much harder. Self-critical. You shame yourself. But this is not the Father's voice. This is not the Father's voice, not his perspective. And there's a vast difference between sustaining humble and repentant spirit out of a reverence for God, out of love for God, and going down this condemning shame spiral path. One leads to life and the other leads to death. You see, a son or a daughter recognizes the absolute tenderness of his father and therefore has the ability to affirm others around them because they feel affirmed by the Father. Do you see that? Do you see how that changes the way you relate to people, the way you live? And this is the path that brings the freedom that we are so desperate to possess as people. When we live under the slave mentality, we're under constant pressure to perform which becomes our compass in life. That constant pressure causes us to be deeply critical of ourselves, to to, to measure ourselves by standards that we just can't live up to. And this chronic self-criticism inevitably leaks out onto others. And this is why it's so important to understand this idea of sonship and adoption so that we can live in that reality, so that we don't have to keep trying to measure up or perform. See, we don't have to live as the scriptures teach. We don't have to live as slaves to fear. We can live in the freedom that all of us long for, that God offers. The freedom of fear, of being dominated by what other people think even. No one wants to live like that. And God is inviting us not to in the adoption and sonship. And finally, we come to the third new reality. And it's this, that living as a child of God provides access, access to the Father. And this revolves around the spirit of prayer. Again, as Romans 8 and then Galatians 4 says, we don't live with a spirit of slavery, but we're invited to live with a spirit of sonship that leads us to cry, Abba, Father. I mentioned this Aramaic word. It's this very intimate word in that language. It means, in essence, daddy or daddy, daddy. And Christianity is different, really, than all other religions in this. It has the audacity to offer what no other religion could dare offer. In fact, I think it's fair to say that most other religions are appalled at this claim. And some other world religious leaders, I've heard it, I've read it, I've heard them say this, that they've even called this idea blasphemous, that we can have this level of intimacy with God. I love how C.S. Lewis describes the paradox of closeness with such a glorious God. He says this from Letters to Malcolm. I fully agree that the relationship between God and a man is more private and intimate than any possible relation between two fellow creatures. Yes, but at the same time, there is, in another way, a greater distance between the participants. We are approaching, well, I won't say the holy other, but he says, for I suspect that it is meaningless, but the unimaginably and insupportably other We ought to be, sometimes I hope one is, simultaneously aware of the closest proximity and the infinite distance. And though we struggle with this aspect of infinite distance, there is this intense closeness that is available to us at the same time. 
Now, there's this idea of, of shamelessness that is important here. And, and we, we know this term. We may not use this term that much, but, but some of us do, right? Shameless plug, right? We know what that kind of means when we're using it in certain context. And, and essentially it means without hesitation or embarrassment. And, and there's a connection here. Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 11. It, it follows the Lord's prayer that he's teaching his disciples to pray. And he says this. I mean, follow this story. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything, right? Kind of get out of here. I can't help you. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he says, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And he goes on, say, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock on the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. Those who seek find and those who knock, the door will be open. And then he follows with this, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, think about it like this. If your dad was the president or a king or, or a high-up judge, if a friend comes to him or even a neighbor comes to him in the middle of the night and says, hey, can I have a cup of water? That, that could be considered inconsiderate, perhaps rude. But if the child, if it's the child that goes to the president or the king and says that, the father immediately responds to that. Because it's his dad, without hesitation, he may be the king to everybody else, but to you, he's your dad. And so what Jesus is saying here is, is he's not like the friend. See, the father is not like that. If a child comes to the door and knocks, he doesn't say, don't bother me. He doesn't leave the door closed. In fact, he does quite the opposite. He opens the door and welcomes it. No matter how small a request, no matter what time it is, you have special access to the father no matter what. He'll be there for you. When my son Hudson was, was about two years old. Grandma and Grandpa would come over, and they spoiled him rotten like many grandparents do and, and would often bring him toys. And so when they came to the door, the first thing he would say was, did you bring me a toy? <laughs> right? And, and I said, no, 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 Hudson, don't say that first, you know, kind of thing. But, like, it's what any kid would do, I think. I know some of you are judging my parenting right now, um, but judge the grandparents, not me. So... Um, but it was so like sweet and cute, and it's like it's how the love exchange happened. There's special access, in a sense, right, that, that, that Hudson has with Grandma and Grandpa. And, and this is where the idea of shameless audacity comes in. It speaks to the state that we have of hesitancy when coming to God. Because we think something like, he's too big, we're too small, he's too pure, we're too impure, he's too whole, we're too broken, the list goes on. He's too divine, we're too human. And not only does this parable address this idea, but what Scripture as a whole echoes is that God longs for us to come to him in confidence and freedom. As Ephesians 2.12 says, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with confidence and freedom. And there's this amazing access that we have, you and me alike, sons and daughters of God, that we have to the Father. And to access God, in essence, you sort of go, what does that mean? Well, I think it can be distilled down to essentially three things. One, to ask. Two, to express. And three, to listen. 
I mean, first, asking, right? Bring your request to God is what the scriptures teach us. Ask boldly. Ask without hesitancy. Ask with shameless audacity. Pray bold prayers to God without embarrassment or holding back. Because if, you'll, if you do, you'll become, my wife's going to hate this word, but you'll become an uber prayer. Right? Don't say that word around my wife. She like breaks out in hives. You know? She hates that word so much. But, but you will. You, you'll pray boldly and constantly and shamelessly and unabashedly. You'll pray relentlessly. When grandma and grandpa come to the door, right, you'll ask for whatever you want. When God is at the door, you'll ask for whatever you want. No request is too small. God cares about it all. Then the second part of accessing God involves expressing yourself in adoration and worship of God, which is what we do in intimate relationships, at least good ones. You express your adoration of the other. And we gather every Sunday in this space to to do just that as a community, that we adore God and we take time to worship Him and express what's in our heart to Him. That's why we do music, because music helps foster that. And this is an important part of any relationship. It's important for you and your relationship with God. You have access to that, to do that. And then the third way we access God is by listening. The truth is God wants to speak to you. And I'm as guilty as anyone in this room of not slowing down or taking time to listen to God. The still small voice in your spirit. That whisper inside, sometimes just telling you, reminding you that you are his beloved. And other times, inviting you to make a choice, the right choice. Perhaps to do some act that causes you to risk or be generous or compassionate or extend love. To listen and obey, which is essentially what a follower of Jesus does, a disciple of Jesus. They're attentive to his voice and they respond. They listen and they act. And God wants you to hear his voice and to walk in that. But do you see how understanding this reality of access and intimacy that we have through adoption can change the way you relate to God and really to others too? And some of you, some of you are a child of God, or you have, you have a secure standing with God. You've entered into a relationship with Him. Your status is secure, but, but you don't cry out to Him with shameless audacity. You're hesitant for a variety of reasons. You don't express your adoration or worship. Perhaps you don't slow down enough to listen, and you've never even heard that voice calling you the Beloved. And God is saying, I'm inviting you into this. I long for you to experience this. And rather than approaching God like a hesitant or shy or even frightened slave, we have been invited to approach God like a confident, convinced son or daughter. Convinced that God has a profound and intense affection for you. You are being beckoned by God to be his child to be part of his family, to be a, an heir of, with God. And that reality can change the way you pray, the way you relate to people, to God, can change the way you worship and engage with God. And if that's not happening in your life, you're missing out. You're missing out on some incredible grace that's available to you every day to walk in, to access. Because you are a son and you are a daughter of the Most High God the creator of the universe, who wants to be intimately connected with you. 
He wants you to know him, and he wants you to know that you are his beloved child, that you belong to him, to his family. I'm going to invite the band to return to the stage. I'm going to pull up this picture that many of you will probably recognize. It's John F. Kennedy and his son underneath the desk. And this picture in its day captured the heart of America. Why? Well, one, yeah, because you see the heart of a child, but I think more you see the heart of a father. You see that, that arguably the most powerful person in the world who has an immense, unimaginable amount of responsibilities and pressure that he has to deal with on a daily basis, still gives 100% access to his son. Because there's a special relationship that's like no other. And this is us. This is us. This can be us, at least, because we're the kid with shameless audacity, nuzzles up next to their father, knows that our place in his heart is sacred and special like none other. And in no way is this a burden to the Father. Instead, it's a great joy and delight for the Father. And as little David said, I don't know if you heard it in the video, but that very last line, he said, no, I don't want to say anything. I just want to be with you. I love that. Spontaneous moment in making that film. But, but, But what if that was our heart? Because God wants to be with us. And he wants us to know and want to be with him so that we can know his love, that we can know we are a daughter and a son of the, we are his beloved. I want to invite you to stand because we're going to play a couple more songs. And the next song is called, you might know it, Good, Good Father. It's a moving song. And some of you are here, perhaps, and and you're still on the journey with God and trying to figure some stuff out. We're so glad you're here. My hope for you today is that you would would just know that God loves you. He loves you just like you are, whatever you bring. And for the rest of us here, as this song plays, maybe you just let the word soak over you. Perhaps you express yourself to God, as, as we talked a little bit about. Because we do these songs every week in part so the truths of God can sink in and in part so we can express ourselves back to God and worship and adore him. Because we have access to this amazing God who loves you and wants you to know him and experience his love in the deepest kind of way. Sometimes we experience God up here in our heads, but God says, I want to take it to your heart. And I want that love, that tender fatherly love to transform you, to change the way you live and relate to me and other people.